Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and made possible by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. Once a month, we'll spotlight the many efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Here's the host of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome into the Hat Soil Health Podcast. I'm Eric Pfeiffer, and today we're going to talk about no-till and cover crops, which is what we usually talk about. Uh, But today we're going to talk about no-till and cover crops in river bottoms, because everyone knows you just can't do that, right? Wrong. We've got someone who does it, and we're going to talk with them about that. I also have a special guest on today's show. And you've heard her on here before, and she is, uh, along with her organization, the proud sponsor of the Hat Soil Health podcast, Lisa Holscher, Director of the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. Lisa, hello. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate you being on. Hello, Eric. Appreciate Who's Rag today for doing all these podcasts. They're great. Well, you know, we're trying to get a lot of information out there, and you guys are a big source for that, so we certainly appreciate it. If, if you could just give folks a little bit of your background, reintroduce yourself for everyone listening to the podcast. Okay. Thanks, Eric. I am the director of the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative here in Indiana. That's a program of what we call the Indiana Conservation Partnership. That's eight separate state, local, federal conservation organizations, along with Purdue University. And we have a mission of improving soil health on Indiana cropland. We do a lot of outreach and education and training and things like podcasts with Hoosier Ag Today. And Lisa, I know that you know, you're excited about today's conversation because we have another special guest with us. And he's special to you because he's, he's one of your neighbors. So would you please introduce our farmer guest this morning? Thanks, Eric. This morning we have with us Ray McCormick out of southern Indiana, southern Knox County, and he is a neighbor of mine, lives just a couple miles down the road. Um, Ray, could you tell us a little bit about how many acres you farm and just introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, well, good morning, Eric and Lisa. The sun is coming up and it's breaking through the fog here and streaming into my office, so it's another beautiful morning here in southwestern Indiana. I farm uh, a lot of rolling hills that are windblown lust, so steep and uh, challenging, and that's really what got me into cover crops. But I also farm a lot of river bottoms, and that would be in the West Fork of the White River, the main uh, White River, uh, the Wabash River bottoms, and the Ambrol River bottoms in Illinois. So I have over a thousand acres of river bottoms. I also have Simmental cattle and I have a duck up hunting operation that we utilize a lot of those river bottoms and, and as an economic opportunity for me. And then I do uh, construction work. So I build wetlands, I have earth moving equipment and so forth and kind of specialize in, in uh, restoring wetlands or creating waterfowl habitat or migratory bird habitat. So, you know, it's, we keep busy just about around the year, but it's a beautiful area and uh, a really good place to farm. Agreed. As another resident of this area, it really is beautiful. So, um, Ray, a thousand acres or so of bottomland. Everybody knows you can't no-till that. 
but you do. How many years have you been no-tilling? You know, we we used to moldboard plow all the river bottoms because you had to moldboard plow it if you're going to be able to farm it in the spring. And then we got to where when the river would cut through, and this was probably in the 60s and 70s where the river was cut cutting through and and eroding out, scouring out in the river bottoms, we began to no-till through those areas. And then when we'd flood out, and a lot of times when you would flood out, it would be this, you know, jigsaw puzzle of, of all kinds of odd areas. We would go back in and splice that all back together. No tilling, you know, we'd go from area to area, no till in the uh, drowned out areas. So, you know, really since the 60s and 70s, we started no tilling, but cover crops really didn't come into the equation and probably until the late 90s and early 2000s. And, and initially it was something to plant when you got flooded out and we frequently get flooded anymore. So if you lost the entire crop, you had the opportunity to put cover crops in and grow something out there. And my love of wildlife and migratory birds, you know, that probably started my interest in it, but then sequestering nutrients and building the soil uh, that made it. So I was more passionate about getting cover crops down there. So it, it really started 10, 15 years ago with drilling cover crops in the river bottoms. So you've been talking about putting in cover crops after a flood, but 10, 15 years ago, you started seeding cover crops for winter cover too, correct? That is correct. So initially when we started using cover crops, uh, you know, in a big way on the hill ground, the erodible ground, that's what, that's what initially got me into cover crops was, was being able to grow soybeans into cover crops on rolling ground. Well, with the success I was having with the weed control and the yields and so forth, we transitioned into the river bottoms. And of course, there wasn't a lot of information on about what cover crops to use and so forth. So, you know, we began to learn which cover crops were best suited and the timing, what time of the year you got them in, shifted, uh, what cover crop you used, and then what the next year's anticipated crop would be also influenced what cover crops we'd use. But essentially, they'll all work because in, here in southern Indiana, you have a long, warm uh, falls that allow those cover crops to get up and get going. But certain ones survive much better in flooding conditions. So sometimes it may flood 10 times over the winter. So you need cover crops that can hang in there uh, being inundated with water. Okay. So, so Ray, I, we both live really close to the white river and some of your fields get flooded with feet. I mean, they'd be six, seven feet of water. What cover crops are really working well there? So once I started seeding, off the heads of my combines, seed size became very important because you don't have a lot of capacity. Once I moved to seeding with combines, then I shifted to small seeded cover crops. So now the foundation of every field starts with annual ryegrass and annual ryegrass not only 
can survive in wet areas. It, it, it actually thrives in wetter areas of fields that may not be flooded, but they may be, you know, have sheet water on them, but they'll also survive 10 foot of water. And other cover crops will, if they're not inundated as they're vigorously growing or for too long a period of time. But annual ryegrass is the foundation of all the mixes that I use in the river bottoms. But, okay, so let's take it back just a second here, Ray. Seeding with a combine, seeding with a combine in the river bottoms. I mean, you're cracked. Well, we all know that. <laughs> Lisa, you know, <laughs> as you know, it floods a lot. So we've, we've got soybeans down there that we planted August 10th, and the uh, stink bugs are working it over. So we went down there and sprayed them day before yesterday to, to help those late beans along. <clears throat> well, when I went down there uh, yesterday to retrieve the semi with the water tanks in it, there's all these green, lush fields with cover crops growing in them. So, you know, we already have them up and growing. So every field that we combine, we seed uh, with seeders on the combine so that whether it rains or whether it's wet out there where you may not be able to drill or so forth, when we leave the field, it's seeded. And those fields now are lush green where we've picked corn down there what, two or three weeks ago, and those turnips and annual ryegrass are three, four inches tall now. So we're already we're already sequestering carbon, anchoring down residue, but it's just pretty. It's just pretty to drive through the bottoms and see cover crops growing down the <laughs> Waxing poetic about how pretty your cover crops are. I just love that. Um, so, Ray... Again, coming back to seeding with the combine, can you just explain that setup? Because I only know a couple other people who have that kind of setup right now. That's unfortunate because everybody in our area that uses cover crops ought to do it. It is the best way to put on cover crops. So back when we were drilling, you know, drilling with an air seeder, uh, John Deere drill, it's hard on the tractor tires it's hard on all the rubber on the drills and i thought cover crops are so important that we'll just have my son drill cover crops and if we give up to one of the three people helping us harvest to drill cover crops it's that important but i kept laying awake at night and said there has to be a better way than pulling an employee away from harvest and then using that equipment and that fuel and so forth. So, you know, I just laid awake thinking, how can I do this? How can I do this? And Marion Calmer had talked about when you harvest with a Okay, wait, 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 wait. Marion Calmer. As in Calmer heads? That's right. Okay. So, so at the National No-Till Conference, I've heard him speak many times. And he's really an expert on corn heads. He had said, if you're running residue through your combine, you don't have your headset right. You want to run the residue through your corn head. And thinking about that, I said, you know, we need to be spraying out the cover crops under the noses of the corn head and letting all that residue cover it up. So 
you know, I began thinking, you know, we'll put an air seeder on our head. So I called Valmar and they said, well, we can have you an air seeder in six months. And then I called Gandhi and they said, we can have you one in six weeks. And I said, I need one in six hours. I want to try this out this year <laughs> to find out what I got to do to make this work next year. And they said, well, we've got one tore apart in the back of the shop. You want it? And I said, yes. So they shipped it right down to John Deere. We took it out and in just a few hours had it plumbed in to the quick attach on the corn head. So we had hydraulic power to the blower. Uh, plumbed in the electricity, and then we proceeded to the field to find out how it wouldn't work. Well, after about 300 acres, I said, by golly, this does work. And so we have evolved from that, but that was the initial beginning. So being able to seed, you know, with a bulk tender and being able to seed your fields off the combine, it just takes two trips down to one. So my seeding cost isn't $14 an acre for an airplane or running a drill and tractor across the fields. My costs were easily made up the first year for the seeder. And because it does it so accurately by having all these tubes delivering it all across uh, the footprint of your corn head, I've been able to reduce my seeding rate. So my cover crop costs are way below anybody else I know. So it's not just the efficiency of seeding, it's the reduction in cost of putting cover crops on. Okay. Um, and you do the same thing with your, with your grain table too, right? You've got that same kind of a Gandhi setup. Well, what we've done is we, on our corn head, to get more capacity, we put a Valmar 4056. So 40 means 40 cubic feet of capacity. We bought it. So it's hydraulically controlled, and we bought a rate controller. And so it's tied in. So as you slow up and speed up and slow down, it changes the rate and we can do far more acres without filling up. So since we freed up one of the Gandys, we've put a Gandy on each side of our John Deere Draper head. So it balances sort of the weight on there. And that's brought us up to uh, 20 cubic feet, 10 on each side with two Gandy air seeders on our grain platform. So we're, we're running them both on corn head and the grain platform. Okay, coming back to the corn head for just a minute. I've been in your fields, gosh, right after a flood and when uh, your neighbor's field, gosh, their corn stalks have just kind of washed down and washed out. But walking through your fields with the annual ryegrass, and I wanna come back to that for a minute, your stocks aren't moving and you've got a little bit of a different setup. You aren't chopping your stocks, right? No, we try to leave them intact and harvested pretty high off the ground. So intact means when the river current comes down through there, they're just not up and floating because those are dollar bills. Those stocks are, I, I, that's a valuable source of fertilizer with the nutrients in them, but feeding my soil biology. So I try to grow tall, 
I grow all non-GMO corn, but I, I try to grow tall varieties that create the most residue possible to feed the soil, but I like to pick it high and that keeps the stalks intact. But again, you go down there today, the cover crops already come up through all the chaff that's on the ground. So it's already sort of entangling the residue here only three weeks after harvest. So you can imagine by maybe January when it gets cold enough to stop it growing. It didn't stop growing all winter last year, but it's massively entangled and, you know, it's being pulled down into the ground by earthworms and, and the soil biology. So, you know, but, I but just Ray, don't want to, huh? You've got so much residue down there. Don't you worry about it not breaking down? No, I, mean, I worry about it not being enough. What I don't like is to be harvesting and all the residue's gone because then I'm starving the soil biology. So residue is my friend and I want to feed the soil biology and it's a very live biology in the, in the river bottoms. And people say, well, you don't have earthworms. Well, we certainly do. They're red wigglers and people go out and dig holes in my field so they can fish <laughs> using the earthworms. <laughs> you know? I, I'm just having a hard time envisioning that, but I, yeah, somebody out in Ray's field with a shovel digging for yeah. earthworms. <laughs> yeah, they're going over to Long Pond and catching fish and, and I'm planting over these holes that have been dug out in the field. So I don't mind, you know, uh, I'm proud of the fact that after years of no-tilling and using cover crops, is my soil is hungry and it's and it's healthy. And when these migratory birds come through and and get out in these pools of water left by the floods, when they're probing all through the soil, I'm like, good deal. Healthy soil, alive with bugs and worms and everything and they're all these yellow legs and all these shorebirds are probing around through the soil and i'm like see that's a symbiotic relationship and not just growing corn and soybeans and cover crops it's helping migratory birds so that that's a happy moment when i get to see that in the spring and we do love your migratory birds. I love it when you bring me home some nice uh, goose breast and duck breast. I'm expecting <laughs> some again this winter, just right. so you know. Um, so you've got a great story about doing some fertility tests out of your duck blind um, from some of the silts that have been deposited there. Would you mind sharing that? Well, that goes back to the fundamental, you know, I made the mistake one year of not, well, I make it every year, almost every field of not flipping the switch on once I'd filled up or put the head on. And I didn't turn it on as I went down the end rows. And by golly, the next spring after a flood, there was an eight inch lip all along the field where there wasn't cover crops and where the cover crops started. Can you imagine an eight inch bump all the way along the inroads? That's how much soil had been scoured off of that field. So, you know, anchoring the land down and holding it down, just that was the moment I said, I'm using cover crops on every field, no matter what the cost, no matter what the date, 
when you can hold eight inches of soil in place across the whole field and not let it be scoured away. That, you know, we call it the aha moment. I put a Pacers glass down there that I had it with me. Oh, what? Pacers, Indiana Pacers. (sighs) And took a picture of it. And and I'm going to carry that cup to the National No-Till Conference because it was eight inches, an eight-inch lip, right exactly where the it wasn't like it was sort of here and sort of there. It was just like somebody came down through there with a skid steer and took eight inches of soil away. Well, you can imagine years of moldboard plowing and chisel plowing, how much soil has got away off of these rich river bottoms. So my theory now is, is to capture other people's soil. So these people that till their ground and let their soil get away from them, you know, by having corn stalks and, and, and cover crops, they get covered with silt all the time. So you can actually start raising your fields back up by catching all of this soil that's in the water column. So, you know, we always have to wash out all of our duck blinds and our goose pits and get all the mud out of them after every flood. Well, I was looking down at the bench on a duck line, and this bench is probably four foot off the ground that we sit on, and it had this typical layer of mud on it. And so I said, you know, I'm going to let that dry and measure it. So I got calipers out. It was three-eighths of an inch of soil, so about 30 ton per acre of topsoil was being laid down with a single flood. So I took that soil and sent it off for soil test. And you know what, Lisa? It is the best soil in the heartland. It is high in phosphorus, high cation exchange capacity. It is rich in organic matter. It's the best of the best. But what surprised me was that it had a lot of potash in it. We know phosphorus attaches to the soil particles. So when you lose your soil, you lose your phosphate. But the amount of potash in the soil test, I'm like, that's it. I'm done fertilizing in the river bottoms. If I can catch the best soil in the heartland in my fields, there's no reason to be putting more fertilizer on there. So we only use like nitrogen and sulfur now as the result of that measurement. Come on. You still use fertilizer in the bottoms, don't you? Seriously. Uh, No, never. There's also the component of if you do spread fertilizer in the river bottoms, that if you flood out, uh, you have no money coming back from the fertilizer applied. So, uh, you know, I'm pretty much on a program now. We might add potash if we on the higher ground that doesn't flood as much, if we start to see symptoms of potash deficiency. But for years now, I only put on nitrogen and sulfur. And we put on sulfur twice. So we, you know, we put on about six pounds of sulfur, uh, so we put it on with the planter and with the side dressing. So that's our fertility program. Now, if it's a levee bottoms in which we don't get flood water, 
then we would add fertilizer. But in the ground that gets covered with water, and that's what we're talking about here, uh, no fertilizer for the soybeans, only nitrogen and sulfur for the corn. We may add zinc uh, because the pHs are so high. The soils in, in this area, if they pass through the East Fork of the White River, they pick up limestone out of the limestone hills. So the pHs can actually be uh, very high, over seven in these mm -hmm. river bottoms. So you might need to add zinc with those kind of pHs okay. for corn. Okay, so that's adding to your profitability. Yes. But aren't you spending more money, I say, on herbicides? Because you're capturing a lot of weed seed, too, with those floodwaters. I have, a, I have an area in which we're going to plant pollinator habitat, and it was seeded to annual ryegrass. So, you know, I've got like three different areas, and, and so we didn't spray any burn down on it. We just went around that corner and rounded it off to plant pollinator habitat. And this was on hill ground. And so it never got sprayed, it never got planted. And I went back there, it's down a long lane. And I went back there midsummer to mow it down. In that triangle, one half acre, there was one wheat, one sticking up through that annual ryegrass. Annual ryegrass just suffocates weed growth. So, you know, some of our fields this year, Lisa, we didn't even burn down the annual ryegrass. We let the soybeans grow in the annual ryegrass until we post emergent spray. Don't do that with corn. It'll really hurt corn, but the beans seem to thrive in that. So we use that cover crop to suppress weeds and it does it very, very well. Okay. So annual ryegrass. Now, everyone knows it's really tough to kill anyhow, and you're using it as a cover crop in the river bottoms. Again, Ray, you are just cracked. Um, you can't do that, but you are. It floods, it gets too wet, you can't spray. You've got to have a plan B. You've got to have a plan C. What are they these days? Plan one is don't panic. <laughs> I've heard you on the phone when you panicked. You panic, Ray. Come on. I think, I think we all do because we're afraid we're not going to get it killed. My experience is the later you go, the easier it is to kill. You go out here when it's cool and it's cold at night and it's not vigorously growing. And you're going to have trouble killing it. And it's difficult to kill. My solution to that is, is spray it under the best conditions possible. And if that's two weeks later, wait on planting your corn or just go ahead and drill your beans. They like growing up in it, but we won't, we won't get in there and try to kill it until the corn's ready to plant when it's nice and warm. And then we always use now a 2x rate of Roundup. And then we balance the water pH and we don't spray within three hours of dark. We wait until it's warmed up during the day. So we follow many of, uh, you know, our old friend, Mike Plummers. He did a lot of research on it, but certainly. Out of Southern Illinois. 
don't panic on annual ryegrass. Let it keep growing because when it starts getting near maturity and you haven't planted yet, it wants to die. So it, you get better kills. What you don't want to do is let it get big, kill it, and not get it planted because annual ryegrass gets like wire after it's been killed. Now, small annual ryegrass, it'll just break down. Tall annual ryegrass can be pretty darn tough to get through with a drill. Drill doesn't like trying to push through tall annual ryegrass that's been dead and has died. So this, this leads you to more of, of green planting, but it also, one of the keys is don't seed it too heavy. So let's talk about rates. 10 to 13 pounds an acre. So we're going with soybeans because the drill has the most trouble in annual ryegrass. It's 12 pounds of annual ryegrass and one pound of turnips. Thick annual ryegrass may want to waller around and lay down and so forth. My corn planter will go through it, but I've had the unfortunate experience of not being able to drill through it and having to get our 15 foot replant planter out there and use a 15 foot John Deere planter with split rows with with coulters to be able to get through it and get a stand so don't let it get away from you drilling and don't plant it too heavy annual ryegrass is not very expensive so if you can plant your cover crop for ten dollars an acre you know, or $12 an acre and with a combine, put it on for free. Um, you know, that's really a reasonable cost. And think of what it's doing for me. It's sequestering carbon. It's suppressing weeds. It's improving uh, drought resistance. It's infiltrating water. And the list goes on and on and on. So think of all the things I'm getting out of that annual ryegrass besides a gazillion earthworms making manure underground for me. You know, Lisa, I like to tell people, what's I got underground is two elephants. And they make a lot of poop. And you need to feed those elephants. So, you know, capturing the fertility that comes from a healthy soil is all part of this system that I have in place of never tilling the ground, not no tilling, never tilling the ground, and then using cover crops. And, and that's that's where I'm getting my success. Now, Ray, I, I want to jump in here for a moment because we were discussing a little bit before we went uh, on the air with the podcast today, just some of your, your harvest progress here. And you were talking about how your system allows you to get back in the field a lot faster than some others after some of these rains that we've had. And that's that's true, right? Well, we just had two inches of rain. And my theory is when the sun comes out and the beans or corn is capable of being run through a combine, we harvest. Now we have river bottoms, so we don't, you know, we don't want to lollygag around. We want to get after it. But this was hill ground and we went right back out there and the first load of beans was 18.8, second load 17.2, third load 15s and you know pretty soon we were down to where you could almost put it straight in the bin but we went right out there and went back to and you know when i'd go to town to eat lunch or get parts i could see combines sitting in bean fields that weren't moving 
And we go right back out there and get after it because with cover crops, with no-till, and I have uh, logger tires on my combine, but it holds you up and it doesn't make ruts and it doesn't make big indentations. So, you know, that's another advantage of having good soil structure. It can hold you up and that is valuable to me because I've got river bottoms and any day it could rain enough for floods to come down through there. So we keep pushing the envelope and, you know, it, we still take until early November to get done. And we still put on cover crops in early November. And it may only look like the hair on your arms when it comes up, but in the spring you go, why did I plant this cover crop so thick? So, we put on cover crops irregardless of the date with the combine. We buy it all in bulk pre-harvest. And, you know, you can tell how we're getting along with harvest when you look how many bulk bags are left in the shop. So, you know, we put it on every acre and it's just a plan that's on a spreadsheet on what each field is going to get. So where we're going be back with corn, it may be annual ryegrass and vetch. It may be annual ryegrass and Balancia clover, or it may be annual ryegrass and crimson clover. And if it gets late and it's in November and it's in the river bottoms, we may drop out the turnips or the brassicas because we'll know that we won't get much money out of those. So we plan all that out. When you order your cover crops, you know what your planting dates are. You know when you're going to harvest those fields. And so we have the bulk bags and we put them in the seed tender. And for us, planting cover crops is like fueling up your combine. We fill it up with cover crops in the morning. We stop once or twice during the day and takes about two or three minutes to fill it back up. And we've got our cover crops on. It's that easy. If you remember to flip the switch to turn the darn thing on. <laughs> Uh, Ray, Lisa, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. And and Ray, I, I ask this of every guest on the podcast because we do have some folks, you know, especially with the conversations around sequestering carbon now and, and some of the carbon credits that are out there, this is starting to grow in popularity. People are starting to look into it that maybe never had before. What recommendations do you have for people who are new to this? I know you've been at it for a long time. What's your best advice for folks just getting started? I think just getting started, I would seed cereal rye, and that could be done by a fertilized dealer if you don't have the equipment, or you could drill it. If you can drill wheat, you can no-till cereal rye, but get you on a cover crop of cereal rye, and I would recommend maybe a bushel, an acre, and then no-till soybeans into it. And that is a slam dunk. And that works every time. So if you're still cautious about doing that, and then talk to some of your neighbors, a lot of times your fertilized dealers, especially in this part of the country, they've got lots of experience of doing it. We're in melon country here. So cereal rice planted everywhere to hold these soils. But Cereal rye, no-tilling soybeans into it. Uh, I think you'll be fascinated how well that works. 
soybeans love cover crops. My yields on soybeans this year that were planted into annual ryegrass that didn't get killed, that did get killed, soybeans love cover crops. So cereal rye and cover crops is a good start. Cereal rye, you go boo and it dies. It wants to die. And so, you know, that's my best suggestion on how to get started. And you mentioned talking with neighbors, talking with someone who's got experience, and and we, we get that a lot on this podcast, is talk to somebody who knows about it. Talk to somebody who does it. And Lisa, you have some resources available that, that folks can take advantage of as well, right? Yes. Um, you can go to our website, ccsin.org. There are resources on there. There's also an events list. There are the podcasts, but that events list shows as many as we can accumulate from around Indiana, from around neighboring states that are in person, as well as webinars and virtual events from across the country. So you can learn from others, especially farmers like Ray. And farmers like Ray that have a passion for this, you can you can hear it in his voice, the passion about soil health and, and what he's doing on his farm. A lot of folks, you know, if you go to one of these events, you're going to run into a lot of folks with a lot of passion uh, for, the, for this, and uh, and those are the best folks to learn from. So, Ray, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on the Hat Soil Health Podcast. We really appreciate it. This has been a, a great conversation. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me, and everybody be safe and have a safe harvest. Thanks, Ray. That does it for this edition of the Hat Soil Health Podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. As Lisa mentioned, you can get more info at ccsin.org. And be sure to join us in Westfield at Grand Park, December 14, 15, and 16 for the Indiana Farm Equipment and Technology Expo. We will be there. It's in a new location this year, again, at Grand Park in Westfield, Indiana. And we'll be recording a Hat Soil Health Podcast live in front of a studio audience. Be sure to bring your questions and come join us. We'll have experts there to answer your questions. Again, that's coming up December 14, 15, and 16 in Westfield at Grand Park. You can find more info at indianafarmexpo.com. I'm Eric Pfeiffer. This has been a presentation of Hoosier Ag Today, Indiana's Farm Network.